Hello, and welcome to my podcast. James Kenny here, and this is Land of the Golden Sunset, the evolution of the Irish from biblical times. This is episode number six, when Hugh O'Neill and Red Hugh O'Donnell took on the might of England around the 1590s. Don't forget, you can become a patron of my podcasts by clicking on to podbean.com. And in any event, please continue to follow and like where you can. I hope you enjoy this. Hugh O'Donnell was a strong youth of 15 years. He had come to the notice of the authorities and was regarded as a dangerous enemy and a sworn foe. His nickname was Red Hugh, and the thought of O'Neill and O'Donnell joining forces in an alliance against the English caused consternation among Queen Elizabeth's agents at Dublin Castle. Hugh O'Neill's loyalty was now beginning to be questioned by Lord Deputy Perrault. If this princely O'Donnell should one day become leader of his clan in Ulster and unite with O'Neill and his clan for the cause of Ireland, what then? The consensus was that this must be prevented at all costs. The English heads at Dublin got together to devise a plan to accomplish the separation of the two young earls. The Lord Deputy, John Perrault, oversaw a despicable plan to separate them. He arranged for a fast-sailing ship to dock at the lock of Rathmullen. This was a merchant ship, so there was no suspicion of treachery. When O'Donnell and his companions were told that a courteous wine merchant was holding a wine-tasting party and had extended invitations to all who might be interested... O'Donnell and friends went along and were well received on board and taken below to a special cabin where they tasted the wine on offer. Soon they became heady and drowsy. O'Donnell fell asleep until morning. When he awoke, he discovered that his weapons had been removed and were missing. He tried to open the cabin door but found it locked and soon realized that there was no escape. He was overpowered, clamped in chains, and taken to Dublin Castle, where he was held prisoner. Three years and three months, the old chronicles say, he languished in the great dungeon of the dreaded Birmingham Tower, which can still be seen in the yard of Dublin Castle, while Lord Deputy Perrault rejoiced. In 1584, John Perrault was appointed Lord Deputy of Ireland to replace Lord Grey de Wilton, who had been recalled to England by Queen Elizabeth I two years earlier. His chief task was to establish the plantation of Munster, a significant escalation of colonial policy. In 1570, Perrault reluctantly accepted the newly created post of Lord President of Munster which was in the throes of the first of the Desmond rebellions. He landed at Waterford in February 1571, and in a vigorous and gruelling campaign, he subdued the province. 
During his presidency, Perrault authorised over 800 hangings, most of them by martial law. After the rebellion, he criticised the Crown's reinstatement of the Earl of Desmond as chief nobleman of Munster. Gerald Fitzgerald, Earl of Desmond, could return to Ireland in 1573, despite the protestation of Elizabeth's councillors. He was detained for six months in Dublin, but in November slipped away. In June 1581, after failing to establish himself, Desmond took to the woods, but he maintained a considerable following for some time. By June 1583, when Ormond offered a price for his head, he was fleeing with only four followers. Five months later, on the 11th of November 1583, he was murdered by Moriarty of Castle Drum at Glenagenti, five miles east of Tralee, at Bohor on Irla. The Moriarty chieftain was given a substantial reward by Queen Elizabeth I. John Perrault requested his own recall, but this was in vain, and in July 1573 he quit Ireland without leave. Upon presenting himself at court, he was permitted to resign his office, and was succeeded by Sir William Drury. Meanwhile, O'Donnell and friends hatched a plan of escape, which they soon put into action. Their first attempt went wrong, and they were recaptured and returned to the dungeon at Dublin Castle. Not discouraged at the setback, they soon had another plan worked out. The following account of this daring act of bravery was given by Martin Haverty in his 1860 publication. It was Christmas Day in the year 1592. The snow lay thick on the ground as Red Hugh and Art O'Neill escaped through the city gates and made their way towards the Wicklow Mountains. The snow was falling thick and fast as they made their way towards Glenmalur. They fell continuously as they ploughed through heavy snowdrifts for miles. They were exhausted with hunger and fatigue and felt they could no longer continue. So they picked out a spot under an overhanging rock and lay down to rest and shelter, where they passed through life and death during their ordeal. The scouts they had alerted from their dungeon before escaping did not reach them in time, and when they did, their bodies were covered with white bordered shrouds of snow, and their light garments adhered to their cold frozen skin. The rescuers at first thought they were dead. Arthur O'Neill, unfortunately, failed to revive, and having died, he was hastily buried, and all trace removed, so as not to leave a trail for the pursuing soldiers. However, a secret mark was placed nearby for their return and burial later. O'Donnell was revived and taken to a safe cabin in Glenmalur, where in time medical attention had him completely healed. When the news of his escape reached Hugh O'Neill in Ulster, he sent one of his most trusted retainers, Turlock O'Hagan, 
to guide the brave young chief back to his native Dungannon. When they eventually met and had time to discuss their future, they pledged to forget their differences and to stand by each other. Fines Morrison was appointed personnel secretary to Lord Mountjoy, who was the head of government and commander-in-chief of the Crown Army in Ireland, then fighting against Tyrone's rebellion. He tells that the English began to suspect O'Neill of double dealing. First, he was advising Red Hugh, who was now taking revenge for their treatment of him in the past. At every opportunity, he was attacking the English whenever he could. Very soon, O'Neill was ordered to appear before the Lords at Dublin Castle. To their astonishment, he travelled there to accost his accusers. And but for the noble and honourable actions of the Earl of Ormond, who informed him that a plot was being hatched to seize him, he made good his escape and returned north. He also heard that strong forces of Her Majesty were already sailing from England to attempt to take over Northern Ireland completely. He immediately set about organising his forces. With O'Neill at their head, the Gaelic Irish set out to do battle. They stormed Portmore and routed the garrison. Then they demolished the fortress, burned Blackwater Bridge and advanced into O'Reilly country, driving the English before them. Finally, together with the forces of Maguire and McMahon, they laid siege to Monaghan, which was then held by the English. Joined by O'Donnell's forces, they marched triumphantly and took Sligo, Ballymote, Tuask and Boyle before crossing the River Shannon and recovering and taking all the land under English domination. The English were now demoralised by this victory and requested a truce, which O'Neill agreed to. The conditions which he now demanded were, first, an end to the persecution of the Catholics. Second, no more garrisons of English sheriffs or officials in Irish territories. And finally, to be paid direct to himself a dowry of £1,000 of silver from General Henry Baganal for marrying his sister and elevating her to a dignified state within the O'Neill household. Those conditions were not met. In fact, they were totally unacceptable. So early in June, General Baganal, with a strong force, marched from Dundalk to Armagh, where the castle of Monaghan fell to him, and once again was besieged by O'Neill and his army. The Irish were forced to withdraw and marched about five miles to Clontibret, where they gave battle to the English. O'Neill considered the battle over and won when a charge by the English cavalry prevented the collapse of the English position. Led by Cornet Sedgreave, 40 horsemen charged straight at O'Neill. Sedgreave drove his horse against the prince and they both fell to the ground, where a fierce struggle took place, first with Sedgreave having the best of it and then O'Neill gaining the upper hand. Sedgrave had the prince by the neck when one of O'Neill's officers intervened. 
cutting off Sedgrave's arm, before the prince finished his opponent by thrusting his dagger into Sedgrave's groin. The English, now under John Norrie's, beat a hasty retreat, leaving the castle of Monaghan to the victorious Irish. Three years later, Bagenal led an army into another ambush by O'Neill at the Battle of the Yellow Ford. The English general was killed, and his troops were routed with heavy losses. By the 14th of August 1598, Irish power predominated in the north and northwest. O'Neill, having had many small victories, began to organise for the big battle against the English. Near Blackwater, in County Armagh, at the mouth of the River Callan, is the Yellow Ford, where both armies met once more. The battle raged for most of the day, and the English were forced to give ground by the furious onslaught of the Irish clansmen. O'Neill, in his moment of victory, sought out Bagenal, his brother-in-law, for one more humiliating joust, but learned that he had been shot through the head and killed. To add to the confusion of the English troops, a cart of gunpowder was accidentally exploded within their ranks and blew bodies of English troops in all directions. This weakened the English force under Brooke, Fleming, Wingfield and Cosby. Once more, the might of O'Neill's forces marched on, bearing the flag with the red hand of Ulster held proudly aloft. Previously, in 1588, the Queen had transferred the late Earl of Leicester's royal monopoly on sweet wines to Robert Devereux, Lord Essex, providing him with revenue from taxes. This was at a time when there was an alliance between the rulers and merchants, which came to be called mercantilism. It emerged when thinkers began to turn away from medieval religion towards reason and science. Explorers looked for gold, and monarchs tried to build up their stocks. People in England bought wine from France using gold, and they earned gold when they sold their wool to France. Spain built up a mountain of treasure, brought back from the new world of the Americas, and men like Francis Drake made a living out of trying to take it away from them. Gold was king, and this was the economics of the time. The historian T.N. Burke said in later years, when writing about the Gaelic-Irish, the Saxon might submit to feudal law and be crushed into a slave. The Celt never could. England's great mistake was that they, in dealing with the Irish, had to deal with the proudest race upon the face of the earth. During these wars, the Norman earls were at the head and to the fore of every rebellion. The English complained and said they were worse than the Irish rebels and were constantly stirring up trouble. The reason being that as Normans, they were under feudal laws and therefore the king's sheriff would come down on them at every turn with fines and forfeiture of land held from the king. 
by keeping the country in a state of disorder. They were able to elude the sheriff, and so they preferred the Irish freedom to the English feudalism. At the beginning of 1599, in the words of another historian, no English force was able to keep the field throughout all Ireland. O'Neill's authority was paramount and was loyally recognised and obeyed everywhere outside two or three garrison towns. He exercised the prerogative of royalty. Messengers were sent to O'Neill asking for help to raise the standard of church and country in Munster. He complied and sent Richard Tyrrell of Fort Ulla and Owen, son of Rory O'Moor, at the head of a chosen band. They were welcomed by the Catholic Anglo-Norman barons and the Gaelic chiefs who joined with them and rose in arms on all sides. The newly planted English, who had lawlessly seized the lands of several Catholic families, fled and abandoned the stolen lands to their rightful owners. Every outpost in Munster was now seized, except for the garrison towns of Cork and Kilmallock. O'Neill set about strengthening his position and sent to the western isles of Scotland for some strong allies, while at the same time he renewed his contact with the armed forces of Spain. In every way open to him, he prepared to renew the conflict with his powerful enemy. He knew well that Elizabeth I was not the monarch to release her deadly hold in Ireland without a more terrible struggle than had yet been endured. The anticipated invasion soon became a terrible reality when the Queen's favourite, Robert Devereux, Lord Essex, led the largest expeditionary force ever sent to Ireland. 16,000 troops with orders to put an end to the rebellion. He departed London to the cheers of the Queen's subjects, and it was expected the rebellion would be crushed instantly. O'Neill completely outgeneraled Essex in several engagements, where the might of England was humbled by the Irish in the resulting struggle to hold on to their own land against the invaders. Essex requested a peaceful parley with O'Neill, who agreed to avoid unnecessary killing. The time and place was arranged, and Lord Essex was won over by the magnificent bearing and friendly reception accorded to him by O'Neill. English historians blame Essex for being too friendly with the enemy of his queen. O'Neill set out terms which Essex could not consent to, without first consulting with Elizabeth. He immediately sent dispatches to London, which, when the Queen read, it sent her into a fit of rage. She was furious with Essex for contemplating such a climb-down. She replied immediately in correspondence, full of scornful taunt and upbraiding. Essex now gave up all his duties in Ireland, without consulting his sovereign, and returned to London to confront her. When he appeared before her, she stamped her feet, screamed, and swore at him, and ordered her own favourite to be taken and locked up in the Tower of London. His freedom was eventually granted, but his situation had become desperate, and he shifted 
from sorrow and repentance to rage and rebellion. Essex was found guilty of treason. He led an abortive coup d'etat against the government and was executed on the 25th of February 1601, becoming the last person to be beheaded in the Tower of London. Victorious O'Neill set out at the head of his troops on a national pilgrimage to visit Holy Cross Abbey near Thurles. He held a princely state there, consorting with lords and distributing a manifesto, announcing himself to be the accredited defender of the faith. Early in March, the Catholic army halted at Inishkara on the River Lee, five miles west of Cork. Here O'Neill's troops stayed in camp for three weeks, consolidating his position with the Catholics in South Munster. During his stay, he was visited by the chiefs of the ancient Eugenian clans, the O'Donoghue, O'Donovan and O'Mahony. There also to greet him were Florence McCarthy, Lord of Carberry, and Donal O'Sullivan, Lord of Bearhaven. An unfortunate incident occurred while they were camped, and O'Neill lost one of his most accomplished officers in single combat with the enemy. On the 18th of February, 1600, Hugh Maguire, chief of Fermanagh, had left camp with a priest to comfort a dying man. They were only gone a short time when they were accosted by a group of English soldiers from Cork, led by Sir Warham St. Ledger, Marshal of Munster. When they came face to face, the Irish chief rode forward to joust his opponent with spear erect. Maguire slew his opponent, but died within a few hours of the encounter from wounds he had received. His foster father, his priest, and all the commanders of his regiment were also killed. O'Neill and his army were now called on to return north to prevent possible dissensions in Fermanagh. Soon after reaching Dungannon, he received a most gracious letter from Pope Clement VII, together with a crown of phoenix feathers, as a symbol of the esteem with which he was regarded by the Holy Father. Governments took steps, supported by the mercantilists, to encourage exports and to discourage imports. Imported goods were subject to taxes, making them more expensive, which made people buy more locally produced goods. There were sumptuary laws in England, which banned expensive, sumptuous products. Show-offs could be put in stocks for wearing silks and satins. Many of the illegal luxuries were foreign imports. As the mercantilists become more powerful, others mourned the passing of old ways of life, in which what was valued wasn't trading and making money, but chivalry, the honour and bravery of knights and kings. Edmund Burke said, The age of chivalry is gone. That of sophisters, economists and calculators has succeeded, and the glory of Europe is extinguished forever. Never, never more shall we behold the generous loyalty to rank and sex, that proud submission, that dignified obedience, that subordination of the heart which kept alive 
even in servitude itself, the spirit of an exalted freedom.